Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you're listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Bob Underwood. He is the author of the book, Damn It, Electrifying America and Taming Her Waterways, which I think is an incredibly clever title, Bob. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, just please tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and what led you to to write your damn book. <laughs> well, thank you, Aaron, for the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a fascinating discussion. I come from a long line of engineers. Both of my grandfathers were engineers. My father was an engineer, and I actually hold three engineering degrees from Stanford University. have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and an MS and PhD in aeronautical and astronautical sciences. That's a mouthful right there. <laughs> my, my PhD dissertation was in computational fluid mechanics, and I also earned uh, an MBA from Santa Clara University. I've lived around damn people my entire life. Uh, I was born in Paducah, Kentucky, as my maternal grandfather, uh, George Jessup, was completing the construction of a nearby uh, Kentucky Dam. And we'll talk further about it, but he was a legendary dam builder in his day. And while I was a child, uh, my parents took me to see various dams that he had supervised the construction for, and I lived with him while I was in high school. Now, my 30-plus-year career in venture capital and private equity has been focused on developing uh, technology-based businesses. It's interesting that I began my career in Silicon Valley, and there and elsewhere, I rubbed elbows with the inventors and early developers of the laser, uh, the internet, the cell phone, supercomputers, personal computers, semiconductors, et cetera. And I interacted with, over the years, with many famous engineers and entrepreneurs. Maybe it's because of that, I always have been intrigued with how uh, technological developments impact the way we live. And uh, that's a theme of this book. I do have extensive experience with uh, climate change and renewable energy. Earlier in my career, I served in the federal government uh, at the Department of Transportation as a special assistant for engineering sciences uh, in the office of the secretary. And I was considered uh, a technology expert for energy and environmental issues, which uh, DOT dealt with considerably. And I co-led a major pioneering international program assessing the climatic impact of stratospheric flight. I, I interacted extensively with climate modelers worldwide. And more recently, I was the only outside director of BP, British Petroleum's solar energy subsidiary. And I was a longtime member of the National Science Foundation's Advisory Committee on Industrial Innovation, where I have been involved over the years with numerous energy and environmental projects. Now, the inspiration for this book, though, was my grandfather. Uh, it all started with my wanting to make a record for my kids of what dams he had built to preserve that heritage. Well, I started looking into things, and one thing led to another. My interest kept growing. And uh, the scope of my thinking kept changing and growing. And it got, so the more I investigated the history of hydropower, and I figured that now over the years, I, in preparing this book, I did over 4,000 hours of research. 
the more I realize the story of hydropower is a, a damn good one. And it, it rivals that, I think, of any transformational technology we've seen coming out of Silicon Valley. Whether you have eccentric inventors, uh, financial wheeling and dealing, political intrigue, mind-boggling engineering and construction feats, inspiring personal stories, it's all in there. And I decided to write a book about it. So that's plenty of background about me, I think. <laughs> well, it is fascinating. And I think uh, you really have the background to, to bring this book to life. And I personally am, am fascinated by history. And I know our power readers really like history, too, because one of the most popular stories on our website is our history of power, the evolution of the electric generation industry, which we published over five years ago, back when our magazine hit the 135 a uh, year anniversary in 2017. And that article continues to be our most read article on our webpage. So hydropower is a big part of that early history. And it's a lot of that is covered in your book. So what did you find most interesting about the history of hydropower while you were doing this 4,000 hours of, of research and, and writing the book? Well, I would say overall, the most interesting to me really was the fact that I got to be exposed to extraordinary people through this time warp. And I really felt I was transported back in time to be in their presence. And that's an amazing feeling. And uh, I hope some of that is conveyed in the book. And other thing that's related to that is the fact that so many of these players in the development of the industry were so interconnected. They all knew each other over the years. And uh, it, it was fascinating to see the personal dynamics that would go on among them over time. For example, uh, Edison and Henry Ford, who was another major player in the development of the industry, surprisingly, were best friends. Some people even say that to use the term they use today, it's almost like they had a bromance. Um, mm -hmm. And later on, FDR, who was another primary player in the evolution of hydropower and the electric industry, uh, would meet on short notice with the head of TVA and other utility leaders. And just call them in, or they'd call him and say they wanted to come in and talk. Now, there was always a purpose to the meeting, but you know, uh, uh, there are transcripts of many of those meetings. It's fascinating. And it went on and on. These people all knew each other. Uh, you could go back to Samuel Insull and Edison. And, you know, all these interplays and, and, and lots of conflicts among those players as well. But I was determined not to make this book a textbook or a book that would only appeal to engineers. When I was in grad school, my thesis advisor told me, if you couldn't explain some technical proposition so layman could understand it, you really didn't understand what you were talking about. You were hiding behind the technolese. And I, I still feel that way, honestly, about doctors and lawyers I deal with. So I went out of my way to dig in and make the book full of human interest stories and try to convey how hydropower fit into the, the big picture. I mean, Maybe a couple of examples of the first hydroelectric facility that went in less than a month after Edison did his Pearl Station uh, facility in lower Manhattan was in Appleton, Wisconsin. The guy that made that system happen was a guy named H.J. Rogers, 
who owned a paper mill there. But he really put in the system, and it was a very small system uh, and very primitive. He did because his wife, who didn't really want to live in Appleton, Wisconsin, was building a mansion on uh, the side of the hill overlooking the river, and she wanted to impress people. And so he thought, wow, if I put electric lighting in there, that'll really be something. You know, that kind of, of, of story. And then the things about what uh, America was like at the time Edison invented his incandescent light bulb, his practical incandescent light bulb. I mean, it amazes me to think that, just think of the population growth that has happened since then. The population of America was one-seventh of what it is now. If you think of it. If you're looking around a room, you're sitting there with seven other people or standing with seven other people, six of them wouldn't be around if we were back in that time. And that has dramatic impact. Or later on, when uh, streetcars, electric trolleys and the like, uh, literally replaced riding horseback through muddy streets and towns, it was a phenomenal change. Uh, And the way I like to think of that is uh, a horse produced uh, maybe 20 to 50 pounds of manure daily and a gallon of urine. And if you could take all those horses off the street, just think what it did for your your metropolitan area. But those are just kind of stories that or or human interest things that I tried to weave into the book uh, while still preserving the comprehensive technical content that's necessary to really portray the development of such an industry. I've often attended conferences where they've shown pictures uh, from the turn of the century, you know, 1900, where it was all horses and there was one car shown in that picture. And then in 1920, where it's all cars and there's one horse-drawn carriage in that picture and how much change there was over that 20-year period. Obviously, there's a lot of change that is still going on today and, and we don't even know what the future holds. So it's it's really an interesting time to to be in the power industry and to see how things are changing. Another thing that talk about Ford and Edison brought to mind is I live in Southwest Florida and they, the two men, Ford and, and Edison actually had winter homes in Fort Myers and I've been next to door to there. each other. <laughs> yeah. They built them right next door to each other and, and went down there and, and spent a lot of time collaborating together and just thinking and, and talking about how they could change the world. And they really did. But your grandfather, uh, George Penny Jessup, uh, was his name. He was a very important influence in this book. How did he influence you while you were growing up? Did he take you to some of these projects and explain some of the difficulties that he encountered? Or or how did he hand that knowledge down to you? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, the main thing was that I actually lived with him while I was in high school. So I was... (laughs) Day, nighttime when I wasn't in school, I was in the house with him. So knowledge got conveyed in many, many, many ways during that. But um, he, we, we'd be driving around, and he, he would see a construction project somewhere. He'd stop, and he'd point out to me, see how they're pouring that concrete over there? Now look at that rebar that's in it. Now, they're doing that right, or they're not doing that right. And, he, he, you know, just things like that, just by, by talking with me about things like that. He taught me to always be observant and to be curious because he was. He used to always say, and he practiced this, he tried never to go quite the same way 
every time we drove somewhere. That ended up one time when we were driving from Long Island back to Ithaca, New York, with our ending up in a barnyard at the end of a road because he was going by a compass. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we ended up where the road gave out. But, uh, you know, these are things that he practiced and he thought that everyone should. And uh, when I was in high school, I was taking a basic physics course. And I had homework to do. It was a basic teeter-totter problem. And I thought, oh, I'll just get granddad to tell me how to do that. Uh, and he's, he says, I don't know the damn formula. And he put an N at the end of the word that time. And he mm-hmm. says, let's, let's go figure it out. And he took me out into his barn, found a board, and we made a teeter-totter. And he found some parts that were there that each one weighed about the same. He put, we put one on one end and one on the other. And then we started adding more to one side. And before long, we, we decided the formula, force times distance equals force times distance. You know, uh, he, he believed in practical ways of learning and reinforcing things. And he conveyed that to me. And we didn't actually go to any of his dams because he was retired at the point when I lived with him. But I did go to a number of them with my parents over time. But I heard a lot of stories from him about the dams and both the problems and kind of the vivid things, too, uh, along the way. But, you know, building dams in those days was exciting stuff. You know, uh, as you know, electrifying America was important. In, in the early 1900s, 1900s, the way it radically, radically changed our lives. And uh, men like my grandfather wanted to be part of something that was important that mattered and in those days americans were viewed worldwide as being inventive i think we still are and having a talent in engineering and for doing big things and he wanted to be part of that and very soon before he died he told me that all of us have a duty in our life to try to make the world a little bit better for having been here he then told me that his dams were his legacy that he believed they helped make many people's lives better, and he hoped his legacy would last long, long after he died. Well, I think that has happened. Uh, I've tried to do that in my career by helping to build businesses. I don't build dams, but I try to help build businesses. He passed that along to me, too. So there were lots of lessons that I have learned from him over time. And I know you mentioned earlier a little bit about power struggles, and I think it's pretty well known that Edison and Tesla and Westinghouse all kind of had a, a feud going, particularly about DC and AC power and which was preferable. And I know you mentioned uh, FDR in the book and Harry Truman and JP Morgan. All of these are names that people recognize and know and have heard stories about. But what are some that maybe stood out to you that they don't know or or maybe ways that these people were involved in the electrification of America or in the the dam building process. What stood out to you or or how did they influence uh, some of the things in your book? Well, um, I didn't realize when I started this how influential J.P. Morgan, who you just mentioned, was in all of this. I mean, not just in the electrical business, but in everything else that was going on, because he always was trying to build a monopoly in whatever industry it was. And the way he manipulated Edison to merge another company uh, uh, of the time that was his big competitor, Thompson Houston, into 
Edison General Electric to form General Electric, essentially shoving Edison aside and out of his own company. Uh, and, and J.P. Morgan kept having huge influence through the financing and uh, of the industry, both the hydroelectric side of it as well as the coal-fired side of it. I did not realize that before I got into this book. Another character uh, who was totally influential through that time, and you almost never hear about anymore, was Samuel Insel, who started out as uh, Edison's personal assistant, went on to be like chief operating officer for him before the merger of General Electric, and then moved over to really be the prime mover behind getting Commonwealth Edison in Chicago going, and later became probably the most dominant figure in the electric utility industry before he got wiped out during the depression and uh, a lot of people lost money when that happened. And uh, he's sort of been written out of history, but he was a very influential character in the history of the industry. And I almost guarantee that most people do not realize that Henry Ford was such a significant player. He was a strong proponent of hydropower. He looked at water as free and he liked to get things, uh, you know, as economically as possible in, in doing things. And, uh, you know, he, he was experimenting with hydropower from the time he was a kid. He went on to develop 30 different hydroelectric facilities, small and large. He had his battle to try to buy uh, the Wilson Dam property, Muscle Shoals, and that's where he, he got into it uh, with Senator Norris. And that went on for four or five years. He lost, but that sure elevated the the view of, of hydropower in this world. And uh, Norris went on to really be the, uh, the the biggest public power advocate around, and it was the real stimulus for getting the TVA going. But people would not know about Ford and what he, he did there, I don't believe. And of course, we we talked about FDR. I mean, he was he, he changed the industry. He, he vanquished the private power side of things and really took us into large federal uh, multi-purpose dams going forward. Very influential. Those are some of the ones. There are other ones that are, you know, in the construction side and the rest of it. Another one is, I, I mentioned is J.D. Ross, Seattle Power, who was very influential, went on to be a commissioner of the first, at, at the beginning of the SEC, uh, was head of the Bonneville Power Administration after that, had Huge battles with Stone and Webster, who are two other big players in the development of the industry as well. I found the story of Charlie Stone and Ted Webster, which became Stone and Webster Company, to be fascinating. And they they were significant players all the way through during their lives. That's just a few of the people. There are many more. We could go on and on, actually. What about your take on the future? Do you think that hydropower has a good future ahead of it, or, or what do you think? Well, I I do think it's critical as we're going forward. You know, it, it, it was the original clean renewable energy source, as you know, and I think it remains vitally important today as we are shifting, uh, and, and you've talked about this in some of your previous podcasts as well, as we shift to uh, renewable energy, and most of it by wind or solar, which are intermittent power sources. And, you know, 
when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow and you still need electricity for lights, you have to have something to help level out the supply side of it. And that's where hydropower comes in because effectively hydropower is a water battery. It stores energy that can be released when you need additional energy going into the grid. And right now, 90% of the long-term storage in the grid is hydropower, which is a big portion of it. Batteries are coming in, but they have their own problems. And economically now, water power is more economical, and especially when you look at pump storage. And that's where I see the future of hydropower being over the next few years is uh, dramatically increasing the amount of pump storage. If we can get around the regulatory timeline that it takes for any hydropower or any energy project to, to get licensed these days, licensing a hydropower facility or relicensing it can be a 10-year process and cost millions of dollars. And we need energy sources now to get toward the kind of timelines that uh, society is asking for and shortening down the, the, the regulatory process is important, not making it go away, but shortening it. So I really think of, of pump storage as rechargeable water batteries and how that's going to be important. And those don't even have to uh, be on rivers. They can be closed loop systems. They're even putting in some now on abandoned mine sites, whether it be in mine shafts or out uh, picking what used to be pit mines and using them for the upper and the lower reservoirs. So there's a lot of opportunity for hydropower, but it's it's back in the spotlight. It's getting much more attention now than it has had for quite a while. You know, your point about pumped hydro is very pertinent because I believe if my memory serves me correctly, it's about 90% of all storage that is available today That's right. is pumped hydro. You know, so batteries get a lot of the press, but Pumped hydro is doing a lot of the work. That's very true. And if, and it can be increased. There was a Department of Energy study a couple of years ago that looked out at various sources of power. And it said that they believe that uh, you could increase hydroelectric capacity 50% between now and 2050 if the regulatory process works the way. And 75% of that growth will come from new pump storage. And that's necessary, I think, to have happen. Well, it certainly does benefit the wind and solar, as you said, which are intermittent. And and using that pump storage to kind of balance that is a great uh, option. They really tie together. <laughs> right. If you think of it that way. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Have you got any other final comments you'd like to leave the audience with before we wrap up? Well, I just hope your listeners um, come to appreciate how important hydropower has been and is in, in the making of America. And they come to, if they don't already feel it, that they come to sense how exciting the evolution of hydropower actually was. Uh, it, it, it was exciting. I would agree. I think it was exciting and it probably still is exciting engineering any solution is is exciting and it should be something that kids want to get into because it's solving problems and and making the world a better place well you know i recently there's been something called the uncommon dialogue that's been going on where groups got together 
representing the river preservation community, environmental groups, utilities, Indian tribes, and the like. And after they got over thinking that each one needed to destroy the other, they came together and uh, actually came out with combined recommendations to Congress about how to move forward on some of these things. Because there was a growing realization that climate change is probably the greatest threat to rivers. So what can be done to help with the climate change issue, including with this hydropower component, is critical. And then they found there was common ground to be able to say, how can we make one part of this work with another part of it? And there are 90,000 dams in this country, and only 3% of them have hydropower. The rest were built for other purposes and don't have hydropower currently. And not every one of those should still be here. But if you think of it with a systematic global approach, you can make informed decisions. Hopefully everybody wins. (laughs) Uh, And I think that can happen. Yeah, I think there's always pros and cons to every solution, but I think hydropower has a place in the energy mix. Yes, it's only part of the mix. It's not the ultimate single answer by any means. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time. And again, for listeners, I've been speaking with Bob Underwood. He's the author of the book, Damn It, Electrifying America and Taming Her Waterways. For people that may want to get a copy of your book, where should they go? Well, it's currently available. It just came out. Currently available on by Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or uh, bookstores really everywhere. So, you know, it's readily available. All right. Great to hear. Thanks again, Bob. Thank you, Aaron.